listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. We're back and you are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 16th of October to the 20th of October. Uh, This week's highlights included, uh, I went and saw a community theatre production. Had a little bit of a chat about that, and also we got to chat to Shane Moss, who um, is doing a comedy show called A Good Trip. It's about and drugs. <laughs> and then we had a discussion about uh, Sarah's bowling escapades, various bowling tips mm-hmm. came up along the way, and then we talked to Peter Grester about being detained in Egypt and his book, The First Casualty from the Front Lines of the Global War on Journalism. And on Tuesday morning, uh, we did a bit of a toot your horn Tuesday and I told you all about my trip to Hobbiton in New Zealand. Mm. And uh, Jeff told us about told us about how he bought some sheets. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Uh, we're back from our holidays. Thanks, thanks for having us, everybody. Thanks. Sorry, uh, I can't speak this morning. I can't, I can't say words no, anymore. You're doing all right. Really? I feel like they're it's coming fairly, out backwards. It's fairly consistent, though. Okay, great. So it's <laughs> fairly consistent. All I need to be in yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. It's a, um, it's a promising school report there. Thank you. <laughs> Try now, Sarah. Try. Fairly, fairly consistent. She's got a positive attitude. Yeah. You know, when we were overseas, just really quickly, we walked mm. through a cemetery and there was a gravestone in uh, Christchurch or somewhere, I can't remember where we were, and on it it said, uh, whoever the, name's, the name of the woman was, say Sarah Smith, and mm-hmm. her epitaph was, she hath done what she could. <laughs> Is that just the biggest, like, <laughs> she has done what she could? It was, like, there was nothing much, good to say much, about this woman. The best like, she could. She's not in our hearts forever or loved forever. It was, oh, she did what she could. I remember Maybe. seeing someone in the Melbourne Cemetery that they had his name and then they had his nickname, which was Winger. Like, yeah, it's like this guy's probably sick. (laughs) He's like dying. Stop your whinging. You'll be fine. Come on, Winger. She hath done what she could. Maybe she. That's um, all I need to do in life. What I could. Unless they were trying to save someone. Oh, Oh, yeah, maybe. We just assumed that she was a very unpopular woman. <laughs> so she was a hero. Yeah, what are we going to say about yeah. her? Oh, oh, she did what she, she did. What she could. Um, anyway, Sarah, reasonably consistent. <laughs> Carry oh. on. Anyway, now, that's another. That's a talk break for another day. We'll All try right. and think. We'll, we'll put on on a what our epitaphs will be. Did I say that right? Anyway, who Mine cares? Will be Jeff. He argued with Epitaph? idiots on the internet. Yeah, ah. No, we'll come up with something else for yeah. you, mate. That'll be a good one. Hands. So you can start messaging us uh, yeah. for that. So we'll talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, I wanted to talk about. Um, so on. <laughs> on sorry, we'll move on. Saturday night, um, being one of the last nights of. He grabbed what he could. <laughs> Look, it was there. It was going to waste. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> He lies, Panchetta Hearns. He grabbed what he could. <laughs> I mean, all right. Doing you all the service right, sorry. would have been wasted otherwise. No. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> sorry, Geraldine. No. No, no, no. Please, that was, that was well worth it. Um, oh, yeah, so Saturday night, one of the last nights of the holidays, and um, Kath uh, was... 
she kind of went, do you know what, it's it's not often, it's quite often that, um, you know, Jolene invites me to see theatre shows and I often can't go and she was reading the pa- local paper during the week and found, she goes, oh, there's a, there's a theatre show happening at a brewery on Saturday night and she said, do you want tickets to go to that? And I went, yes, please. And she went, oh. it's about, and I went, so no, you don't need to say anything about it. Of course I want to go see some theatre at a brewery in Gippsland somewhere. Yes, I'm up for that. Of course we're going. Um, so we went and saw... It was very... I don't know if you've been to much community theatre um, no. things. No, I, par- I partook with some community theatre as a child. Same. My whole life was community <laughs> theatre <laughs> as a child. It. Yeah. And then did it a bit as an adult and it's kind of... it's a. I thoroughly loved it. And actually watching the, the show, I thought, oh, maybe I'll... Maybe Get back I could into do, it. Do it again. Um, there are certain things to love about community theatre and there are certain things to go, what's what's going on here? Um, the, uh, the subject matter was pretty heavy. What was it? Oh, that's always hard when community theatre is yeah, tackling a big topic. expecting a light, fun night out. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's, you know, it's. I, I think it's a, it was a very um, interesting play about... Um, it was about uh, Matthew Shepard. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, that young he was queer a, guy who was killed. He was bashed. Yeah. yeah, right, that's heavy. Yeah, and uh, we went and saw a community theatre show about that <laughs> in a brewery with about 20 people oh, in the God. audience that went for three hours. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh. Three hours. Oh, that's three so hours long. non-stop? No, it was. Uh, we had a fifteen-minute interval. Did you think about yeah, leaving during that fifteen minutes? Let's make a dash. Or did you not realise <gasps> there was another hour and a half to come? Yeah, didn't realise. And Kath was like, "I wish I had known this is three hours." And I'm like, "I don't," because we never. I would have been thinking about that the whole time. Whereas I didn't know that it was three hours. It wasn't until like we kind of got out and was you know actually it was at the first interval we went. Geez, this is. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just going to go for another half an hour. Maybe it's just a very late interval. Yeah. And then uh, just went for another hour and a half. Wow. So was it intense in a good way or intense like Man, there uncomfortable? Was, was it well handled? No, yeah, it was. It was. It's, there, some of the performances were incredible. Some of them were humorous. Um, maybe not intentionally so. Okay. Um, it's always a varying degree of... And that's Talent, what I, he? that's honestly what I love about community theatre. There was one man in it who seemed to be the oldest cast member playing all the characters of the, all the youngest characters. <laughs> <laughs> and I just found that to be highly amusing. Um, because there was one stage, because, you know, there's a cast of like uh, maybe 10 actors and they all play, there's about, there's about 60 different characters in the show, so they all play multiple characters. And at one stage, the older gentleman that's in the show um, played a character called DJ Shadow. No. <laughs> Did they? Are the like, DJ Shadow? Not the okay, DJ Shadow, right. oh, but just a character called, just a coincidence, right? <laughs> so to, and so they would have like minimal like um, costumes and stuff to show the different characters. Right. Um, so, but DJ Shadow, it was this older man, grey hair, 
put some headphones on and a couple of gold chains. <laughs> and went, hey, I'm DJ Shadow. Oh, my God. And were they doing that? Were they, were they like, trying to Was he holding his ear or was and going, like, you know, sometimes wiki, they... Wiki, wiki. <laughs> Almost. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. Almost. Sorry, what was your... Oh, no. But they, were, they, were they trying to do that? Was it like, you know, sometimes they get, you know, the male characters, male actors to play female characters to mix it up? Wasn't anything like no, that? No, I think... Was no. it a statement? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> because then the next character he played was like a, a young, the young Christian boy that found Matthew oh. Shepard tied to the... So t- um, for that, he wore like an oversized gridiron T shirt ah. and a hat on backwards. Oh my God. But he was like 60 plus. <laughs> He'd gone from DJ Shadow. <laughs> oh so God. that's, it's things, little things like that that get you through a three hour community theatre show. And then it's an hour drive back. But we saw oh. lots of wombats, so that was great. <clears throat> yeah, well, I do like wombats. Yeah. Three hours is a long. Um, do you think it's just like that they've got it together and they feel like they've got to make like a big statement? You know what I mean? Like we've got everyone together for our show and so we've got to do a really heavy, really long, so it's... Oh, well, no. so you know when they'd edit it? I think it's just a long play. Oh. I think it's, yeah, because, uh, you know, it's a it's a play. It, it's not written by the community theatre. They just happen to be oh, doing it. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's well written and stuff and, you know, for the most part it was really well performed and I just think community theatre has very much has its place in in the world and I thoroughly on on a whole I, I enjoyed it. Catherine was like, I'm so sorry I took you to a three hour heavy hitting play and I'm like, I can't I cannot tell you how much I bloody love that <laughs> just because I'll have something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Here is a song about to go on Tuesday. That's all you're going to get. <laughs> oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> Jess, oh my is, God. Jess is just out of the building at the moment. She was back momentarily, so I tried to cover for it. It was terrible. Um, yeah, well, no, it was, well, plus for, um, A plus for trying. Thank you. Mm. I could have at least thought of a word scheme that rhymed, but anyway. Um, hey, so I'm going to take a different tact with Toot Your Horn Tuesday. Yeah, why not? Yes, because I've been away and have done nothing practical in my life. But I'm just going to talk about something really cool that I did when I was on holidays mm. and I just want to toot about it. Is that why all right? Why not toot about that? Okay. Not, okay, nothing. So on the last, I'm just going to feel some air. Yeah, that's right. So on the last couple last day of my holidays, so I was in New Zealand recently and we did some really cool things when we were there. We went and saw one of the things we did was go to the glowworm caves, which was amazing. <sighs> Yeah, well, I wasn't going to talk about that, but I can I can talk about all I the love things. Yes, right. They were amazing, and we got to go on a boat through a cave and look at glowworms. That was amazing. But the other really cool thing I did was go and visit the set of The Hobbit. I'm really like genuinely the, excited about this. The biggest New Zealand cliche of all. <laughs> Is it really? Okay, so, so friends of mine said, "Don't." Don't don't miss The Hobbit. Like, you have to go and see the set of The Hobbit, even if you're not a massive Hobbit fan. So I'm not a massive <gasps> Hobbit fan. And my, but my sister, I grew up, my sister was obsessed. She read all the books and I wasn't so good with the fantasy stuff. So it wasn't really my cup of tea. But it is the coolest thing. I've, like, I paid 70 bucks, I think, maybe to go on the tour. Wow. And Hobbiton is the most amazing. It is 
you go there and you feel like a child and you just feel like all those magical dreams you had as a child have come true and all the fairies at the end of your garden are alive. Okay, so explain it to me. Is it it the set left over from the film or is it like a theme park? it is the set left over from the film. So what they did, Peter Jackson, when he was in New Zealand looking for uh, sets for The Hobbit, he essentially just flew around New Zealand looking down. It all looks like the set. It does, doesn't it? You would know all those rolling hills and stuff. And he found this spot on this person's farm and went, that is... That Hobbiton. is Hobbiton, you know, and he saw the and he saw the uh, the tree and all these things that were described in the book, and then he went and knocked on this person's door and said, "Hey, we'd love to feel the Hobbit here." Yada yada yada. And did the guy there who, whose door he knocked on look like a Hobbit? No, he looks really normal. But apparently, okay. he's he and his dad run this milking farm, and apparently, his dad went. Lord of the what? And then he kicked, <laughs> you like kicked him under the table because he had no idea what this guy was talking about. <laughs> And, of course um, he did. I know, right? I was so good. But these they they kind of agree to have the Hobbit film there, but then they just built they originally just built it as a temporary set, so they kind of used styrofoam and made it look Hobbit like and then they tore it all down. But then when they came back to film Lord of the Rings, they thought, let's make it permanent, actually build Hobbit holes Why not? in the friggin' hills and keep it here as a place for people to come and visit. And so you get taken on this little bus ride into the middle of this farm and you get out and it is magical. It is like rolling hills of little hobbit holes. I, I know this sounds like the nerdiest thing ever. And <laughs> hey, were you dressed up like in a wizard? No, but, okay, but there were people dressed up. I'm not even lying. So there's lots of people dressed up. <laughs> But it is so cool and you, you spend two hours and you walk around and you look at these hobbit holes and you get you get told about the it's been made to 100% perfectly uh, reflect what the description of Hobbiton was in the book. So Peter Jackson was so crazy about making it perfect that he even hired um, like these hawks to come in every day to get rid of the native birds so that you couldn't see native birds and he had... Uh, a tree that didn't look the right colour, remade and hand like hand stitched with little leaves, and then painted a certain colour because in the book this plum tree looked a certain way. You know, I know, right? Okay, you're rolling your eyes. I can hear it, but it is so true to you. you genuinely feel like you're walking around this little hobbit town. And, you and are they characters? Like, are they people? Nah, but that would be so cool. But each each of the hobbit holes is belongs to one of the people in the town. So there's like a baker, and the baker has all these little goods out the front, and it's, it's just all these tiny, really cute details. There's little clothes hanging on lines. There's a fully working garden with gardeners keeping garden like the hobbits would have it. So like an actual working vegetable garden and stuff, you, it looks so unimpressive. And then, <laughs> and then, yeah. Sorry, I just always Why hated. Why like I just always, always hated the Hobbit. Okay, I, I don't. I wasn't really a fan of the. Do they sing their little Hobbit songs? Oh, but you know what? You end up at you like this bit. You end up at the Green Dragon, which is their inn, which oh. is a miniature pub, and it works. And you get to sit in there in the Green Can Dragon. You drink Hobbit beer? Yes, I had a Hobbit beer. Well, what's Hobbit beer? Oh, it's just an ale, an English oh. ale. But you could get, you know, ginger ale and stuff. But so that was so cool and it was the nerdiest thing I've ever done. I loved it. But there's a nighttime tour you can do, a, do with, which is oh. apparently where all Hobbit the hard Hobbiton after dark. Yes. <laughs> it's Hobbiton, by the way. Oh. And um, all, apparently that's where all the hardcores go, so everyone's really dressed up. And you do a tour and then you end up with a green dragon and you get to have a feast, a Hobbit feast. Oh. Yeah, so next time I go back and we'll do that. What do they eat? Hobbity foods. <laughs> To get to smoke the Hobbit pipe? No, I wish you did. Maybe, maybe you'd bring a Hobbit pipe. I don't know if it, I don't know if it, is that legal. What are they smoking that? <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's tobacco. <laughs> anyway, how cool is that? That that's pretty cool. I'm tooting that. about that. <laughs> um, what are you going to toot about? How can you top <laughs> Hobbiton? <laughs> nothing that can top it. A Hobbit village. I was going to 
feel uh, I feel a little bit stupid now because what I, I was going to talk about the fact that I replaced all of my towels and sheets. Oh. <laughs> it's not quite the same. No, do that. I replaced, Go on. Replaced Bring it, it down a notch. With hobbit towels. <laughs> what do you mean you replaced all oh, no, your towels? It's just one of those things that you never do, right? And you'd suddenly realise that um, they're all disgusting and yes. you had them for years and years and years. And because um, Steph was staying with me for a week too, I was staying mm. with me, so I thought I should spruce the place up. Sure. <laughs> so I went down to you know like Myers or something, and they had a big sale, and I bought them all. I think that's awesome. Yeah. I really do. I think it's underrated. Did you throw out all your others or donate them no, or I'll something? Keep them on. They might come in handy. No, you've got to get rid of them. That's a gross name. You've got a bunch of gross towels <laughs> and nice towels. Well, look, it's no hobbits. <laughs> okay. Three triple. That's right, you're tuned to Triple R. This show is Breakfasters with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah, American comedian Shane Moss, is in town during his show, uh, doing his show about psychedelics, A Good Trip, from tonight to Saturday at the Comics Lounge. Right now, though, he's joining us in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. Hello, thanks Hello. for having me. Uh, I was reading your promo material. It explains that you've had a long career in comedy and a long career with psychedelics. So which of those came first? <laughs> What's the relationship between them? Psychedelics came first. Uh, <laughs> Um, and then uh, comedy came after. I, I think I did my first psychedelic when I was 16 years old. I started comedy just before turning 24. Um, and I, I definitely, even on like my first album, I had a, a, I believe I had one joke about psychedelics. But I, um, I, I was when I started my career, I kind of caught some breaks and was a late night comedian and I had like short absurdist kind of material and uh and then i started doing because i started doing more international shows i wanted to do themed shows and i started having um kind of a science bent to many of my uh performances and i have a science podcast called here we are where i interview neuroscientists and psychologists and that sort of thing and so i started working that into my act and i made um a few different themed shows and this is my third theme show and it happens to be about psychedelics because i love psychedelics and <laughs> it's also just kind of a trick to get people i've been trying for years to market a show like hey come and laugh about how the brain works <laughs> and that can be kind of a tricky show to market but people love hearing about drugs and so uh and psychedelics are kind of an interesting inroad into perception and uh consciousness and that sort of thing so that's how all this show came about when we're talking about psychedelics, what exactly are we talking about? Well, my favorites are probably um, mushrooms and uh, psilocybin mushrooms, and uh, which I I have a long history with, going back like sixteen years or so. They they've helped me with depression and helped. They've been kind of a creative aid for me. Um, they're uh, they're really for. Uh, I mean, if I had, I, I used to do a lot of factory work, and when I did factory work, I'm not sure that mushrooms were really helping me uh, <laughs> with my factory job at all. Because uh, I don't know if that did pass occupational health and safety maybe. standards either. <laughs> yeah, I, especially when you're like driving a forklift and yeah. whatnot, you probably don't want to be hallucinating. But um, but as a comedian, it's it's kind of like creative steroids. How did it help you with your depression, though? Uh, well. 
I mean, most most of the time that I do uh, mushrooms, it's it's because I'm kind of in a transitional period. I don't know which direction to kind of take my career next, mm-hmm. and I'll have like a few different ideas in mind, and I'll gobble some mushrooms and reflect on it. And usually, I come up with a solution and have kind of a clear way forward. Not that it works that way for everybody, but for me, it does. Yeah. Have all your psychedelic experiences been positive? No, <laughs> oh. not at all. So what? So with the negative ones. How why do you go back like well a lot of the negative ones are ultimately kind of rewarding um because you uh, a lot of times it gets into um a lot of your insecurities and past like stuff that you've dealt with in childhood or whatever and so it's very hard in the moment but then afterwards you kind of reflect on it and be like oh that's where that came from that that kind of uh um exercised that part of my brain that was uh, like we all kind of repress a number of ideas and experiences in our lives and ideas don't like being repressed uh the brain doesn't work Uh, i mean the brain's kind of a frustrating computer because when you try to repress ideas it's like trying to uh, if the brain were like a computer it'd be like trying to like click and drag a picture of an ex-girlfriend into the trash can but as soon as you put it in the trash can it just pops up as your as now now it's your screensaver or whatever and it just gets bigger and louder and now there's all these images of her and that's kind of how the brain seems really to work good when, you, when you repress things it doesn't it doesn't seem to work and so i found that psychedelics are kind of a good way just to kind of get those it's uh it's a bit of an exorcism (laughs) for those kinds of ideas and was that what made you a science nerd or did did Uh, both those things kind of happen yeah i think that that helped a little bit definitely i mean you really get into some deep worlds in the mind and then afterwards you go what the hell was that and Usually after I, I have a trip, I'm like, I need to read more about neuroscience and understand why in the world I saw what I saw. These are illegal substances, and I'm sure there are people listening who will say that they're dangerous ones, and by talking about them like this, that you're glamorizing them and, you know, forklift drivers will go off and gobble down <laughs> sure. mushrooms or whatever. How, how do you respond to that? Because you must get that argument a lot. Yeah, I mean, one, there. I mean, compared to uh, if you look at the rates of, of harm from alcohol or cigarettes or something like that which killed however many thousands and thousands of people a year compared to say lsd deaths which is like i don't know eight maybe uh deaths a year worldwide um it's there's really no comparison but i i mean i don't i don't i don't think that psychedelics are for everybody i consider myself uh, a psychonaut meaning i use psychedelics to explore the inner workings of my mind so i don't i don't recommend it for everybody it's like uh like I'm, I'm pro NASA, but I don't think everyone needs to be an astronaut <laughs> yeah. and get in the ship. Like I'm not going to peer pressure people. No, you got to get in. You see the world from up there; it'll change the way you see everything. I'm telling you, you just have to. Like a lot of people are fine just living their lives here on Earth. They don't need to be. No, you have to see it. Well, what's the bathroom situation like? Oh, you'll get used to it. Trust me, it'll be great. Don't some of those. Shuttles explode? Oh, once in a while, but it's overplayed in the news. It's so. like Elon Musk with his, his mask. We do seem to be going through a rethinking of the war on drugs. What kind of regime would you like to see prevail? Like, how, how would you like to see psychedelics 
treated by society, I suppose. Uh, well, I mean, I don't think that uh, – I think a good first step would just be to go back to where they kind of originally came from, which was in a therapist's office. That's where – I mean, mo- most of the bad – when people talk about bad trips and whatnot, usually it's just a fundamental misunderstanding about what they're about. I think psychedelics should be kind of a meditative therapeutic aid, whereas a lot of people, when things go wrong, it's usually they're in college and they're like, oh, I took a bunch of mushrooms and – went to a keg party and oh it was awful like oh yes it was i know exactly where you went wrong there keggers are awful they are an awful (laughs) awful time mushrooms tried to show you that and you blamed the mushrooms for your (laughs) negative experience so i would like to see it in um in a therapy setting which they're doing a lot in the u.s right now with mdma treating ptsd for veterans and and uh and that's the FDA is kind of moving that along. I think that would be a good approach for it. Um, and but I mean the the war on drugs just isn't working and is is creating more harm um, than than not. And if you look at any of the things that I mean that I, I mean first off the the U.S. just uh, voted Donald Trump to be our president. I'm not sure things can get any crazier <laughs> than they already are. And and if you look at what people were voting on, they're voting on things like uh, uh, they're scared of like Mexicans or terrorists or inner city gangs or whatever. And how uh, the cartel or terrorist cells or inner city gangs get all of their money is through illegal drugs. If there was no prohibition, they wouldn't have any money and they simply wouldn't exist. So the war on drugs seems to create more problems uh, than it's worth. And, and, uh, and, and especially if you look at anything that a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are doing with all of the amphetamines that are amphetamines, cocaine, and and pain pills are a Schedule Two drug in the U.S., um, meaning they're the second worst. Schedule One drugs include marijuana and uh, and psychedelics like mushrooms and LSD. So to say that those are somehow more more harmful than uh, than speed and heroin and that sort of thing seems uh, seems at least to be uh, misguided. Mm-hmm. This show that you're doing tonight and until Saturday, I, I saw it described as part stand-up, part TED Talk. How do you balance the entertainment and the info? Well, when I first started doing the show, it was all it was a hundred percent a comedy show. It was uh, I have these jokes and these funny stories about experiences, and I would sprinkle in just a little bit of information here and there. And as I was doing it, that was the p- stuff that afterwards people would be like, "Oh, I really liked the the little bits of information." And so I just kept on putting more of those in, and then I was like, "Oh, I wonder if people will tolerate this amount of information." And so. In the beginning, it was just figuring out a balance of how much information can I put out there where people are getting happier um, about the information that they're getting rather than being bored that I'm now lecturing them. <laughs> um, and so it is a little bit of a tricky balance, but I've, I've been doing the show for a couple of years now. So This concept of um, you know doing themed shows, it's, it's, actually, it's quite common in Australia yeah. to do it, but... Um, it's rare that I hear of people doing it from America. Is that starting to change? I don't know that it is. I mean, I kind of, 
I How started did you doing come theme about? Yeah. because I started performing in Australia and okay. internationally, yeah. and I was like, "Oh, I want to do that. That yeah. seems fun." So yeah, me me coming here and and um, and traveling around Europe a bit uh, is kind of what put the idea in my head in the first place years ago, and so that's why I started doing themed do shows. Do you remember the so, first? If you guys don't like it, it's your fault. <laughs> you did this to me. I used to be just a regular old comic telling jokes. Do you remember the first theme show that you saw? Was there any particular show that you saw and you went, oh, that's... Um, was it just in general? I'll put you on just the Just in there, general. Sorry. Yeah, a little bit. I remember um, The Pajama Men. Oh, yes. It uh, was one that like yeah. really stuck in my head where I was like, wow, yeah. that is like so different than anything that I'd ever seen before. That's the first thing that comes to my head where I'm like, yeah. as far as theme shows go, I don't do anything uh, like, like that. Them, yeah. <laughs> like them. Um, not many people do, but, but that was one that definitely stuck out in my head. Yeah, cool. This show is called A Good Trip. It's on at the Comics Lounge tonight, Friday and Saturday. We've been talking to Shane Moss. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, guys. Three, triple, ah. You're on triple R with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Uh, so last night I went to an event, Mushroom Music put on this bowling event every year and invite a bunch of people. We just go and bowl. It's fun. I never... Bowl and I went with. Why don't you bowl? It's not something I do. Mm, okay. Yeah. I think you went to this last year, did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did. And uh, I'm just as terrible at bowling as I was last year as well. <laughs> but I, it, it's so last night we there's a bunch of people from Triple R there. Um, Sam Cummins, Nick Tripp, Grace, Sarah Barber, myself, and then there was a couple of other people on our team who aren't from Triple R. And uh, it turns out Nick Tripp from Triple R is like a secretly good bowler, has never practiced, hasn't played for two years, but bowled over 100, a game, like an over 100 game, which is a very good thing I've discovered. But I'm just as terrible, if not worse, than last year. And it kills me because I'm like super competitive. Mm. For uh, no, but, but I'm competitive based on nothing. I'm not a particularly skilled person. Did, did Nick know that he was good? No. Uh, yeah, what would he, he, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, right, that he's got this secret yeah. ability. But, well, I don't know, he just seemed quietly confident. He goes, I just bowled at the arrows in the middle of the lane. That's what he said to me. And yeah. I said, well, and then I tried. It, I suppose. Well, I know, but then I tried and it just kept going into the gutter. Cause where I have, are you, sorry, don't take this the wrong way, but where are you putting your fingers in those balls? In the, in the holes? Yeah, but which, and which <laughs> fingers, sorry. Which, are there other areas of the no. ball I don't know about? Which, which fingers are, which fingers are, you, are you using? Uh, my, the, uh, I don't know, the, the bunny ear fingers. In there's, your thumb. Where, there's where you're going, nah, wrong, mate. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What fingers are you meant to I use? I wish I had been there last night to teach you. Are you it's for a, real? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you, you want your middle two fingers? Are you for yeah, real? Yeah, yeah. And then so the you, you've got your pinky finger and your index finger to help guide the ball a bit better. That makes sense because I always spin yeah. it. So yeah. the problem with mine is it starts off really good and then I get this weird top spin on it, which would make me look good if it was for the purpose Maybe that, that was it was Nick, for. Nick Tripp's See? secret. He had the right fingers in the right holes. Oh. Yeah. And, and I just I know about there fingers. No, no innuendo. <laughs> there is no way you can say that without. Uh, it's fine. Anyway, move on. Uh, I'm sorry. No, I was going. Yeah, there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it, man. I'm going to try that. I want to go back. I kind of want to go back by myself to a bowling alley, and I'll go. I'll take you. Do you want to go bowling? Yeah. Yes. All right. Let's do that. That'd be great. Absolutely. Because here's here's the trick that you do. You want to line up. You. 
want to line up. Using those arrows is very important on the lanes. Yeah. You'll see the arrows on the lane. You don't want to aim for the middle one. Yeah. You want to aim for oh. one to either to the left or to the right. It's because you don't want to hit the pin straight on because then, then you're going to end up with a 7-10 split. Excuse me. Oh, you sound like Are you, you like a secret of... freaking bowling champion? I worked at a bowling alley. Oh, my God. So, forgot about uh. that. And you seven ten split all the. Um, Can you please come and play on our team the next time this <laughs> yeah, happens? Yeah, sure. So all the all the pins have <laughs> what's this, what's all the technical this, language. This taken a turn I, know. I wasn't expecting. I know. <laughs> and you know how I know the seven ten split because we yeah. named a cocktail after it. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> so because all the pins are numbered, you know, it's yeah. one, two, three. So the seven, it's the pin, the last two on each corner. Yeah. You know, the, oh. on either side. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. So that that's the um, you know. So you got one at the start. Yeah. Then two, two, three, four, five, five six. Seven. So that's the um, two on either side. So seven ten split means that you know you you can't. It's hard to get those two pins. Yeah, you can't hit them each because they're one on either side. Or you, you can. can. If you so flick you, one pin into the other. Yeah, yeah. So the yeah, trick is to get it. Unlikely that would happen. Yeah. I've done it. Don't want to brag, but I've done it. <laughs> Where were you last night to guide me? I was at the Taylor Mac 24. Oh, yeah. He's really, oh. man, so one of the best you, shows. So how did this um, competitiveness manifest itself? I just turned into a bit of a sook. I just oh. kept getting more. Everyone's like, it's all right, Siri. Don't have to be good at bowling. But I just get like, oh, oh I just get down on it myself. It is frustrating, isn't it? Because yeah. Because you go, right. I'm going to get it this time, and then you you don't. And you don't, and then you have to sit down and wait. Yeah, you can't just keep on getting up and doing and it again. There was other people, say Grace, who was also on our team. Maybe she secretly bowls, but I don't think she does. Maybe they all who, go bowling without telling. I know. I'm just <laughs> but she just seemed to be able to throw, like do do what I was doing, but effortlessly knock down pins. You yeah. know, whereas I think that oh look, I agree. It's a frustrating sport. I always end up just getting really angry. Yes, at the. At the bowling alley. Yes. And just sit there staring at it. And? Just hating it. That Stupid y- bloody bowling. <laughs> Stupid. Didn't want to come anyway. <laughs> uh, you are not invited next year to Sarah. <laughs> it's funny you should say that, though, because I got so annoyed that like, my last bowl of the night, I decided just to throw it because I saw some, oh, really? people, <laughs> I saw some people do that and it worked really well. But I threw it and it went thump and then into the gutter. Oh, well. And people said, what was that? And I went, I just thought the throwing just it might. Just enough. Just, yeah. I'm a bit childlike about that. But, oh, yeah, I was just surprised what by... What was your score? Do you remember? Yeah, I've got it on a piece of paper right here. Let me see. I T- can check it. Tell me the scores. On... Do you want me to tell you everyone's scores individually? Oh, you... <laughs> no, no, no. Tell nah, me. Oh, just what did, mine. What did Nick get? Nick got 106. Oh, that's average. Ah, oh. for 10 rounds, that seems pretty good. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's good. It's average, though. All right, well, we're playing with someone... good on him. We, I could beat that. There was someone on our team that got 100... <laughs> All right, sorry, Nick, this is too <laughs> nasty. <laughs> There was someone you were up high there for a moment before you crashed down. There was someone on our team that got 149, but they weren't they not from Triple R. They were just the talented people. Dra- oh, see, that's a good score. dragging us over the line. Yeah. I got 47, and the oh, next mate, that is woeful. I know. You see, it's not just me. But Do you know what? I'm hey, ta- wait. Sam got 63. Is that also woeful? Yeah, Great. absolutely. Woeful <laughs> seems to be the hardest. You know what? I know, right? I will take you bowling. Yeah, and I will double your score. Really? You reckon you can improve me that much? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Maybe you could sell your services as Who a knows? bowling coach. Well, let's see if I can actually <laughs> back that up first. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Uh, Jeff, do you want to come to our bowling gig? Sure. Although I must say what does usually end up happening is after I get really angry at the 
bowling alley, then I suggest we should go and play air hockey instead. I'm really good at air hockey. Me too. That's a challenge accepted. (laughs) You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Triple R, listening to Breakfasters with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Our next guest, Peter Grester, has had a long career as a journalist. In 2013, he spent 14 months in prison after being arrested in Cairo, where he was working for Al Jazeera. He's now written a book about that experience and other issues entitled The First Casualty from the Front Lines of the Global War on Journalism, out now through Penguin. Right now, though, he's joining us in the Breakfasters studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much for having me. Maybe we can begin with the political context of your arrest in 2013. What was going on in Egypt at that time and how did you get embroiled in it? If we, yeah, let's go back to 2013 and what, what had happened was that the Muslim Brotherhood had been ousted um, in, a, in a coup about six months earlier. The Brotherhood, of course, replaced Hosni Mubarak as the fir- in the first democratically elected government that Egypt had ever had in its history. And so when we arrived... Um, there was still an ongoing struggle between the Brotherhood supporters and those supporters of of the coup that ousted them. Um, There was a great deal of political turmoil, but I was just there covering the Bureau over the Christmas New Year period. It was just to fill in a gap um, while the the staff were trying to find other journalists to fill fill a position. And so... I really didn't know the story that well. I, I didn't really get a sense. I didn't know the, the, the edges of the story. You know, when you're working in that kind of environment, after a while you get a sense of how far you can push things before you upset the authorities. But because I'd only been there a little while, I didn't have really any, any idea where, where those limits were. I was playing with a very straight bat, um, doing what I'd consider to be pretty routine vanilla journalism. So when there finally came a knock on the door the night of December 28th, um, and I was... And a whole bunch of security agents burst into the room and, and arrested me and then hauled me down to the police cells for interrogation. I, I had no idea it was coming. The Egyptian um, judicial system is notoriously brutal and the Egyptian police have a particularly bad record about torture in, yeah. um, in particular. Tell us about um, how you're feeling. I, I hadn't I- realised before I'd read the book that you had only been there for such a short period of time to be suddenly sort of thrown into this yeah, incarcerated situation. It, it was very, very strange. Uh, it, was, it was surreal. I mean, I thought this would be... I thought it was a huge mistake, to be honest with you. I thought that someone had misread the room number on the search warrant and, and come into the wrong place or perhaps misinterpreted something that we'd said. And, you know, there'd be a few phone calls and they'd have a look at our stuff and realise that there's nothing there and then, you know, apologise, <laughs> shake our hands and let us go. Um, we, we we weren't tortured, we weren't abused, and I think part of that was because of the phenomenal volume of support that we had mm-hmm. from people around the world, from human rights groups, from diplomats and governments and so on. Um, and so, at least in that respect, the torture that you, you mentioned, was we, we, we managed to escape. We got knocked around a bit from, from some cranky guards, but nothing too serious. I, I did see the consequences of it, though, and I spoke to a lot of other prisoners who told me some absolutely horrific stories, consistent stories, um, about the kinds of things that were taking place in Egypt at the time in the prison system. But no, it was, it was, it was pretty extreme. And in the end, what was, really, what was really difficult for us to cope with was the charges that we were faced with. We were, I was accused of being an agent for a terrorist organisation, of being a member of a terrorist organisation, of, of financing a terrorist organisation, of broadcasting false news to undermine national security. It was pretty much, when you think about it, it, it was 
um, being, I was accused of being a, a propagandist for terrorism. And that was, that was pretty extraordinary. That was difficult to reconcile with what we'd actually done. When you were eventually sentenced to your time, it was seven years? Seven years, yeah. What was your initial thought? Did you kind of dismiss that and think, no, this is, this is just the first step in a process and I'm going to be fine? Or did you feel overwhelmed and think this is... Oh, that was, that was a pretty overwhelming moment. Yeah. I thought... I, 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 because at every stage we thought that it would be over quickly. After our arrest, we thought, oh, in a couple of hours they'll recognise the mistake and let us go. And then I thought, well, maybe a couple of days they wanted to rattle our cages. Um, they wanted to send a message to other journalists, you know, intimidate them, stop them from speaking to the Muslim Brotherhood. I thought, no, that, that'll be over. And I thought then that it would never go to trial. We thought then... Once it went to trial, we thought, look, the judges are going to have a look at the evidence and recognise that actually the whole case is hugely embarrassing for the prosecution and, and chuck it out of court. And then when we knew the dis- when we knew that we'd have to go the distance, I thought, well, th- there's no way that they could, vic- they could convict us of anything serious. Perhaps at the very most give us time served because by that stage we'd already spent six months in prison. Um, and then and so to be convicted and sentenced to seven years was an incredibly difficult blow i mean that was that was a that was a tough day was that i kind of feel like that that would be the moment where you felt like there was no hope left like a deep step along the way there was always oh no no this is going to be okay this is going to be okay and then yeah i i I got to the point long before that to give up hope i I don't mean that in in a negative sense actually Mm. I, i came to discover fairly quickly that hope is is actually quite a destructive thing because what you're doing is is you're projecting forward to some kind of imagined non-existent future, and it never works out that way. I mean, you know, we, we, we always hope, but the reality is never quite the way you hope. And and the more you hope, and the more that thing that hope consistently gets dashed, and it was consistently getting mm. getting thrown down. The more I realised it was actually quite a damaging thing. It's not that you completely quit; you didn't give in but that you had to at some point recognise the, the situation that you're in and, and deal with that rather than try and wait for something that may or may never come. Mm. And what kind of communication were you having with the Australian government at that point? Were you, did you kind of feel like they had your back? And there are a lot of reasons to criticise uh, the DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and, and the Australian government, but in, in this they were, they were fantastic. I've got nothing but, but praise for them. Mm. Um, Julie Bishop did a sterling job diplomatically i know as as time has gone on i've discovered an awful lot about how much work dfat was doing behind the scenes in in pulling all sorts of diplomatic strings that we were never aware of at the time and the embassy staff were also fantastic um they they went above and beyond the call of duty one of them even brought in managed to raid her her daughter's special stash of freddo frocks and smuggle in (laughs) (laughs) this is a book that came out of your specific experiences in Egypt, but you also write about the broader context of journalistic freedom over mm. the years. And I mean, I was struck by a passage you write about reporting from Afghanistan in 1995, and you say that at that time journalists were actually very well respected in Afghanistan, and particularly BBC journalists, yeah. where the BBC would be heard playing from every home. Now, of course, that's one of the most dangerous countries for journalists. What has changed? Well, what happened, 1995, Afghanistan 1995 for me became a kind of baseline because we've lived with the war on terror for so long that it can sometimes feel as though it's always been this way, that we've always been in this massive existential struggle with Islamic extremism uh, for our survival and we forget that it, it hasn't been that way. Now, in 95, we would cross the front lines and speak to the Taliban 
because I recognised that it was actually important editorially, ethically, professionally it was important but also in terms of my own safety so that both sides, all of the sides recognised that we weren't the enemy. Um, and we'd go and speak to the Taliban. They had, they didn't necessarily like us or, or agree with our politics or theology, but they accepted us as legitimate players on the battlefield, as observers rather than participants. And that's how it was in wars over tangible things that you could put your finger on, like land or water or ethnicity. But what 9-11 did was turned it from a, wars, a war over tangible things to war over ideas. And in a conflict over ideas, the space where ideas are transmitted, which by definition is the media, becomes a part of the battlefield. And this isn't a hypothetical issue. This is a very, this is a very tangible one with very real-world consequences. If we fast forward to 2001 in Afghanistan, we saw the US drop a bomb squarely on the Al Jazeera Bureau, which had been broadcasting from Kabul from behind the Taliban lines. Now, the Americans never never gave us any clear explanation of why, but it's hard to escape the conclusion that it was because Al Jazeera had been broadcasting interviews with Osama bin Laden and, and broadcasting the consequences of US bombs on civilians. We also saw the Taliban murder four journalists specifically because they were journalists on orders from their superiors to kill journalists. Um, Al-Qaeda but a kidnapped and beheaded Daniel Pearl, again, because he was a journalist. He was a reporter with the Wall Street Journal. And so we saw a radical shift around 9-11, and we've seen it consistently since then, where journalists have become targets. What happened to us in Egypt was a particularly egregious example of what happens when governments stretch the definition of terrorism to include the opposition. Um, but I think we're seeing it all over the world, not just in places like Egypt and Turkey, but even in the United States and, and here in Australia. You were eventually released through a strange presidential authorization. The description <laughs> in your book about how that plays out is quite weird. What's your current status in Egypt, the status of your colleagues? Can you go back there? Uh, well, no, I, I am a convicted terrorist. I, mean, I don't right. know how many of those you've had in your wow. studio. <laughs> I, I think this is the first. Anyone told security? <laughs> yeah, I am a convicted terrorist and I still have an outstanding prison sentence to serve. As far as the Egyptian authorities are concerned, I'm a fugitive from justice. Um, I was con uh, After I was ordered out of the country on a, on a order of the president, the retrial began. Our, our conviction was actually overturned on appeal. After that happened, I was I was uh, removed from the country. But about two weeks later, the retrial began with my colleagues that were still in Egypt, and I was named as a defendant. After uh, another six-month trial, we were all reconvicted, including me, and and resentenced. Now, my colleagues eventually, about three or four weeks later, were finally pardoned and released. But the pardon didn't extend to me, so I still carry the conviction and the sentence. Just really quickly before we finish up, you mentioned earlier, we're talking about kind of the freedom of press and where that sits at the moment, and you quote a New York Times journalist in the book uh, who says that Obama was uh, one of the worst US presidents when it came to national security and press freedom. Mm. I think that might surprise some Australians who don't have a kind of a more holistic view of Obama. Could you just explain that a little bit? Yeah, look, Obama, I've got a lot of respect for Obama. He actually spoke very forcefully in our favour, but his record on press freedom isn't good. Uh, um, as an example, um, let's take the Espionage Act. It was introduced in 1918 in the dying days of the First World War to deal with foreign spying. Since from 1918 to 2008, when Obama was inaugurated, it had been used about, four, it had been used about five times. Obama, and in each case to go after spies, 
Obama used the Espionage Act, or Obama administration used the Espionage Act more than twice as often as all of his predecessors combined, and in almost every case, it was to go after journalists or their sources who were revealing not national security secrets, but politically embarrassing stories. And that had and continues to have a really damaging effect on the whistleblowers who who would tell who would go, come to the press with stories about whether it's misconduct in government or corruption in government and so on. And I think it's, it's, it's had a very damaging effect on, on press freedom in the United States. The book is entitled The First Casualty from the Front Lines of the Global War on Journalism. It's out now through Penguin. We've been talking to its author, Peter Grester. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, folks. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.